Through the darkness of future's past, the magician longs to see one chance out between two worlds. Fire, walk with me. You may be fearless in this world, but there are other worlds. My people believe that the White Lodge is a place where the spirits that rule man and nature reside. But there is also a legend of a place called the Black Lodge, the shadow self of the White Lodge. Legend says that every spirit must pass through there on its way to perfection. There you will meet your own shadow self. My people call it the dweller on the threshold. It is said that if you confront the Black Lodge with imperfect courage, it will utterly annihilate your soul. Where's Annie? Hello and good morning. I am William Morgan and this is a 42 minutes. We are a production of SyncBook Radio and TheSyncBook.com, a weekly conversation with the interesting artists and thinkers of our day. You can find us online at 42minutes.com and you can reach us by sending a message to mail at 42minutes.com. You can also follow our tweets at Sync42 and at SyncBook. Today is the 28th day of April and this is our 182nd broadcast. Mike, Mike, can you hear me? Catch you with my death bag. You may think I've gone insane, but I promise you, I will kill again. Following a dream I had three years ago, I've become deeply moved by the plight of the Tibetan people and have been filled with the desire to help them. I also awoke from the same dream realizing that I had subconsciously gained knowledge of a deductive technique involving mind-body coordination operating hand-in-hand with the deepest level of intuition. Out here, we call that sync. All right, people, it looks like the world has dropped into the Black Lodge, and our shadow work is in high gear. So we'd like to send blessings to Nepal and Baltimore and hope for perfect courage. Although we are certainly going to be talking today about the lynch in the news as of late, we also need to acknowledge this morning the lynch in the news yesterday. Godspeed, Loretta. Now tell us about something else, hopeful, Will. Well, hopeful, I mean, you can find plenty of hope if you go and catch up on SyncBook Radio. I mean, man, the shows have been good lately. And the best way to get every episode is by subscribing on iTunes or Stitcher. Sure, you can listen on the web at thesyncbook.com slash radio, but by finding SyncBook Radio on iTunes and subscribing for free, it ensures that every episode of every program is automatically downloaded to your device. And really... You don't want to miss anything. Dennis McKenna on Marty Leeds, Tom Campbell, Dean Radin, and Dr. Alan Combs on Pentimental. I mean, new audio roundtables from Always Record. Such good stuff lately. And keep in mind, the audio archive of Marty Leeds and Pentimental is free. Go back and binge listen. These are fabulous, fabulous shows. And then consider becoming a member. The Hangouts are great. Oh, and uh, we've got a few rabbits in our hat, too. Yet today's rabbit hole has a dear and special place in my heart. They say that gum you like will come back in style. Well, we, we sure hope so. And we'll get the latest news today from Brad Dukes, author of Reflections, an oral history of Twin Peaks, an incredible compilation of inside knowledge and interviews translating a behind-the-scenes look into a deliciously readable narrative. This is the story of Twin Peaks. Trust me, there's an anecdote or fact you didn't know about the show on every page. Reflections is a book I've waited for 25 years to read. I love it like Cooper loves pie. Welcome, Brad. How are you? Hey, I'm pretty good. Thanks for having me. Great. 
before we touch anything else, we need to find out if Cooper was a true detective. Did he possess imperfect courage? Oh, gosh. Yes, I think so. And so what does that mean in terms of picking up that narrative? Well, uh, spoiler alert, um, <laughs> I think you see it in his face <laughs> in the Black Lodge. Um, I think when things started to get out of hand, you saw that he was overwhelmed. And, and I think that's why he's still there, I think. Okay, now what about David Lynch? What, let's talk about his... Oh, gosh. Right. I am not sure uh, who knows exactly. I, I think there's been so little concrete information put out there about the status of Twin Peaks that I really wouldn't listen to what anybody has to say right now aside from David Lynch, Mark Frost, or David Nevins from Showtime. And then, so there, I think there was there was a semi hopeful report, like an interview with David Nivens, about a, a number of things coming out. But what is what is your personal feeling? Do you feel good about the the future? Or <laughs> yeah, I do. I think that based on the fact that David Lynch and Mark Frost have written nine scripts and handed them over to Showtime, things are going to work out for the best, and I think everybody's going to be happy in the end. I am not holding my breath. I think we've got a long way to go, and I am really not going to feel wonderful about things until everybody has reconvened in Twin Peaks and actual film is rolling. Okay. But then as far as twin peaks without david lynch do you see that as a possibility or is that i do see that as a possibility because you know david and mark put nine scripts together and gave them to the network and you know the world of twin peaks has been established back in 1990 91 directors who were not david lynch did some wonderful things uh but you know on the other hand david lynch directed the finest moments of the show so I think everybody wants him directing at least some of it. I don't think it's necessary for him to direct all of it, but I definitely would feel best if he and Mark Frost were closely involved in overlooking all aspects of the show. Okay, well, you opened the door. What what are the some of the finest moments of the show? The finest moment for me is the revelation of Laura Palmer's killer when Leland Palmer stares into the mirror and sees Bob, I think that's wonderful. I think the finale episode in the Black Lodge is is just incredible, especially because David Lynch ignored most of the shooting scripts. That was really a lot of it all on the spot. And, of course, the pilot episode and that second episode Lynch directed. I mean, there are just so many touchstone moments for the show there. You spend quite a bit of time on on the death of Maddie Ferguson in your book. And, yes. And I, th I thought that was good because, I mean, after I saw Fire Walk With Me, I really thought that she deserved an Oscar for that performance. Mm-hmm. I, I guess as far as what an actress does, you know, I, what did they make her do to try and keep the killer of Laura Palmer secret? Oh, gosh. Well, they the scripts were... <laughs> 
kept under lock and key and watermarked, and the cast only got certain pages of the script. So no one really knew what was going on, um, <laughs> aside from David and Mark. And hey, guess what? 25 years later, uh, everyone else is still in the dark but those guys. <laughs> <laughs> Well, so you, you write about how to keep the killer's identity secret, they filmed it th uh, three different times. Yes. So they filmed, they filmed, and it wasn't, they weren't just going through the motions, they were actually filming these as if it were the real thing. So you, what did you say? Uh, Leland Palmer was one of the killers. Um, how do you say his name? Richard? And Richard Beamer, I believe. Yeah, and he was he's uh Ben Horn on the show. Yes. And then they did a version with just Bob. Yeah, and so I guess they filmed it three separate times and the crew didn't really know what was going on. Um and so from what I am told, I believe one of the associate producers, uh Philip Neal told me that they cut and mastered and edited uh two different endings. And so when they were mixing it, even the people that were in the post-production studio had no idea what was really going to happen. I'm starting to wonder if Lynch knew what was really happening. <laughs> I'm starting to wonder the way I, I listened to Doug talk about Twin Peaks, it's starting to feel like he was making it up as he went and trying to be obscure as possible because I am familiar with some of other some other of Lynch's work, and it's clear that he's trying to confuse the hell out of you. <laughs> well, Mark Frost, the gentleman who created Twin Peaks with David Lynch, told me that it was Leland all along. From the beginning, it was Leland. And so they did have stuff plotted. You're confirming that there were plots here that were the whole series was running with the intention of knowing that this was going to pop out of the bag. Yeah. And from what I'm told and what, from what I'm led to believe, Mark and David knew it was Leland all along and they never wanted to reveal the killer. And by the time you get to the middle of the second season, I believe Mark Frost had sort of come around to the idea that they should reveal the killer. It was time. The audience was getting restless and David Lynch just didn't want to do it. But, you know, 25 years ago, I don't think a television audience it was patient enough for that. Now, I think uh, an audience is definitely patient enough because so many series leave the audience on a cliffhanger, and you've got to wait another year to return to the show. But back then, people were anxious. ABC was anxious, and they really put a lot of pressure on them to reveal it. Well, so one of the really interesting things, and we need to get back to your book and how you became an expert of all things Twin Peaks. But first, mm -hmm. let's talk about the idea of long-form narratives that have kind of entered into our cultural landscape that's relatively new. And it kind of begins with Twin Peaks, this idea of long story arcs that necessitate that you watch everything. Yeah. I mean, I really feel like that was a true turning point in television. And, you know, not a lot of shows picked up on that right after Twin Peaks. Um, Twin Peaks happened and it was basically forgotten once it was canceled in 1991. Mm. I really didn't pick up on that happening again until The Sopranos, which I think started in 1999 on HBO. 
So there's definitely like this dormant period <laughs> where I don't think many television series picked up on that idea of this long story that kind of bleeds into another story and keeps your audience engaged over, you know, in some cases, years. It, it seems like the X-Files had this larger story arc that was really confusing, but there was something there. But as far as, like, an episodic thing, <laughs> you could watch... There were bees and aliens. <laughs> you could watch an X-Files and then not watch a few. But with Twin Peaks, you really, really had to watch everything. So you could follow the solve the crime, but okay. So you wrote the quintessential behind the scenes Twin Peaks book. How I mean, when I, what's so fascinating when I'm reading this is how how readable it is. You just slip into this world, and it's almost like okay. So one of the things about the show that I get from your book is there's just kind of this inevitability of how. David Lynch would let the thing come out. But what we failed to see is all the work behind the scenes. Tell us about how much work it was to make this book, and what was it, and how did you, you know, tell us about your book, please. Well, it never really felt like work until I finished it, and <laughs> you've got to turn, a, you know, 90,000 words into a bound product that people will consume. I originally watched the series as a nine-year-old with my mom on ABC, and I just loved it. And then it scared the hell out of me. I had to take a break and kind of run away <laughs> from it until high school. And then I dove back in, and I saw Firewalk with me. And, you know, Twin Peaks was, has always been a cult property with a small and intense following. But now it's more mainstream. When I was in college, I felt like when I met a Twin Peaks fan, it was a rarity. It was like, oh, you know that show. You're so cool. So, <laughs> and, and the whole series wasn't even available on DVD until 2007. And that's when my fandom really skyrocketed. That's when I got really intense and I started tracking down, you know, every single filming location, going to the fan festival in Washington and there I started making connections and friendships with people. Uh, Kimmy Robertson and Charlotte Stewart, who acted on the show, we're all close friends. And and that came about at these at the Twin Peaks Fan Festival? Yes, yes. And so I guess a couple of years later, I started interviewing people for an old blog I used to do. And I would just track down whoever would talk to me that worked on Twin Peaks. I think... I talked to the location manager first, and even Mark Frost was very available to me. Um, I just started tweeting at him. <laughs> I think he started reading my blog and liked what I was doing. So by the time I wanted to do a book, I had him in my corner, and I had him as a reference. So that got me through a lot of doors, and especially when you're contacting Kyle McLaughlin's people or Piper Laurie's uh, they don't necessarily listen to anybody that contacts them. <laughs> so right. it was, uh, it was kind of like building a house of cards in many aspects. But then in the end, you, you got just about everyone. Yeah, there are a few notable holdouts, but I don't think they were in the mood to talk to anybody. So I felt like I gave it my best shot. Well, yeah, I have to concur. No regrets, no regrets. <laughs> the, the book is fabulous. It really, I mean, if you're a Twin Peaks fan, this is another layer to the onion. 
because I mean, so there's something just so there on the surface when you're watching the show, there's something special and you can sense this. But then the thing that I got from your book was the the relationships that was that specialness was present you know, pretty much the whole time. Yeah, it was not many people in Hollywood will tell you that it was peace and harmony, but Twin Peaks was at least until uh, they got towards the end. And that was really nice to see. And I've had the pleasure of hanging out with some of the cast members and that friendship and harmony is genuine. Uh, All those people really do love each other for the most part. Yeah. And you can see that in that video that, they just produced, you know, the Twin Peaks without David Lynch is like. Yes, yes. Okay, so then let's just, let's talk about the idea of David Lynch's happy accident. Um, <laughs> could you explain, you know, what that is and then why he, why he likes those so much? I'm not sure I can explain it, but from my perspective, he just has, this incredible intuition when he walks into a room. I think it seems like his senses and are open to every little force in every corner. And I think that's the reason Twin Peaks has Killer Bob, <laughs> who was originally a set dresser. I mean, that's incredible. This is the most scary person I've ever seen. And uh, he was just an amateur actor working on the set. And David Lynch said, hey, you got caught in the mirror you're going to be the the evil demon of Twin Peaks. And he's just open to anything in the moment. I think a lot of directors will just come in and look at the script and try to capture what's there. But I think David Lynch goes to a set or a location and sees how that is going to play into the script he's working with. One of the nice things that you mentioned in your book too, is that this idea of, so I was talking about authenticity. So, on one level, they're not acting that they really enjoyed doing what they were doing because it seemed like it was – initially, it was it was out of love. You mentioned that no one was getting paid, but then the authenticity comes from doing a show about a place where they were actually in that place. <laughs> yeah, I think – well, the pilot, the first episode, and Twin Peaks Firewalk with me – were filmed for the most part in the Snoqualmie Valley around uh, downtown Seattle. And it's just a majestic place. And I think Michael Horse, who plays Deputy Hawk, compared it to uh, Monument Valley in the Westerns. And, you know, those mountains and that waterfall and the diner, there's such personality there. And (laughs) the pilot really captured that. I, I hope Twin Peaks 2016 can be filmed up there as much as possible. Back to some of the happy accidents, you know, so what, you, you think Bob may have been the, the greatest happy accident. What are some of the other incredible ones? Oh, gosh. Well, Bob is definitely the biggest one in Twin Peaks. Um, what else? I remember Leslie Linkaglatter, who directed a few episodes, telling me about <laughs> the deer on the table in the pilot episode. And she said uh, one of the first times she met David Lynch, she said, what was up with that deer on the office table? What did that mean? And he just said, it didn't mean anything. Uh, We couldn't get it to hang on the wall, so we just put it on the table. (laughs) So, And, you know, it's not just in the 
when he's working on a set, one of the musicians, uh, the gentleman who plays saxophone on Dance of the Dream Man, told me that he came in to record with David and Angelo Badalamenti and was just kind of warming up, you know, getting loose for the session. Meanwhile, David Lynch had the record button pressed. And so by the time he was ready to record it for real, David Lynch said, oh, we've got it. We were recording you practicing. It sounds perfect. <laughs> yeah. So you just never know uh, with him how he's going to approach something. And I think that makes it really fun for actors and musicians and even people that are working on the set, sweeping the floors uh, that are working with him. Well, so one of the interesting things that, you know, I didn't have any sense of, you know, I, I knew that I enjoyed the performances on Twin Peaks, but I did not know about the kind of lineage and depth and like just the playfulness in casting and, and things. Do you think that's that if you, Are you look kind of curious about how much goes in that the people don't see? I mean, you kind of hinted around that earlier. There's so much behind the curtain. Is that well, what you're getting? I'm at? just wondering about whether or not we would find that at any production. You know, if you look deeply enough, you'll see the interesting connections between... Uh, or do you think this was kind of unique to Twin Peaks? I think it's pretty unique. I mean, Twin Peaks has an expansive cast, and they're even bringing new people in throughout the first season, people like Agent Rosenfeld and Jerry Horn. I mean, these characters are so rich, and they have such identity, and there are a lot of them. <laughs> it's kind of hard to keep it straight. Uh, some of my friends who... Some of my friends who have never watched Twin Peaks, but they're checking out my book, or maybe it's a relative, they'll start watching and they'll be like, oh my God, Like, there's so many people on this show. How, how do you keep this straight? <laughs> and you really, it's kind of a testament to Twin Peaks that you just have to immerse yourself in it and get to know these people. And I think when it comes to casting, it was just all over the board. They went and found notable actors from the 60s, like Piper Laurie and Russ Tamblin and then Peggy Lipton, and then they got, you know, an incredible roster of new, fresh, young actors with Nate Anomic and Dana Ashbrook and James Marshall. And so the casting was just all over the board. It was just a, a kitchen sink approach. And even Leo Johnson, who plays uh, the, the asshole trucker, is the son of the casting director. So they were just open to anything. And I think it shows. That story is so great, too, where... So, Leo, is his name Eric Doré? Yes. He's just... And his mom was the casting agent, and he's just reading the lines to the people auditioning. And at the end of the day, oh, we need we need to cast Leo. And so they cast him? Yeah. It's pretty remarkable. Uh, there's also this uh, Deschanel, like, so uh, once you start taking apart, like, the frosts and where the frost comes from, <laughs> yes. there's a lot of connections and depth there, but then who, who, were, who were the Deschanels that worked on this? Let's see, Mary Jo Deschanel plays Eileen Hayward, and her husband, Caleb, directed three episodes of Twin Peaks. Okay. And... Let's see. Also, uh, another interesting connection is uh, Stephen Gyllenhaal directed one of the second season episodes, and he's the father to Jake and Maggie. And Caleb and Eileen are the parents of Zoe Deschanel. Uh, yes, uh, Zoe and Emily. And, 
<laughs> so and then Emily is this is this uh, enigmatic character in the show who's just there for a second. Who was she in the show? See, uh, Eileen was the the wheelchair bound mother of Donna. Sure, but uh, I mean, when you you took apart, so like one of the things is like when a director gets to do the show, they kind of add their touch. They build upon mm-hmm. what was there, but and so I don't remember which episode it is, but when Ben and Jerry have the moment in the bunk beds with the dancing girl, isn't that Emily Deschanel who does the dance? Oh, no. I think that was Emily Fincher. Uh, oh, yeah, a, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> and yet another connection is uh, <laughs> the actress uh, Rashida Jones. That's the daughter of Peggy Lipton. So uh, there could be a lot of interesting casting choices. Emily in, uh, Fincher is David Fincher's sister. Is that it? Yeah. Okay. Yes. Okay. I knew that I was making it kind of one of those. Okay. Right. You guys are confusing the mess out of me. All right, but I, okay. So, from a journalistic point of view, I gotta admit I am in awe of how much work you put into this. This is amazing. There's gotta be some stories that you just have kept to yourself that you wish you could put in the book but didn't make it. Come on, man, yeah. spill the beans. Tell me something cool. Oh gosh. Well, I called David Duchovny's representatives probably 50 times and begged them and told them that. I literally had interviewed every single person David Duchovny worked with on the show. Every director, all his co-stars, basically everybody but David Lynch. They would not even pass the request on to him. (laughs) That was was pretty maddening. So, David, if you're out there listening, let's talk for uh, the second volume. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) That's awesome. Let's see here. I also uh, offered Laura Flynn Boyle... uh, a hefty donation to the charity of her choice if she would talk to me and she declined that. That was a little disappointing. Um, <laughs> on the other hand, um, I it took me two and a half years to get Richard Beamer to talk to me. He was basically just overdoing interviews, wanted to focus on his art, and I broke the guy down, and now we are buddies. <laughs> um so that was that was a great story. Another one was um, it took me a, a very long time to get Angelo Badalamenti on the phone, but he is the man behind the music, and I just couldn't do this book without him. And I went out to Los Angeles for the Missing Pieces premiere last July, and uh, I went up to him to introduce myself, and he grabbed me and gave me a big hug, and he was like, "Brad, I read your book on the plane here, and it was beautiful." So. To get a compliment from that guy was just it made the three years of work all worth it. <laughs> Do you feel like you're kind of paying them back a little bit for what they gave you? You're trying to uh, to give them some kind of nostalgia so they can go back and relive everything that happened to them? Yeah, and I really felt a duty to make the book as good as it can be because for all I know, they were the only people that were going to read the book. I didn't know if anyone else would want to check it out. And a lot of the you know, cast and crew members have told me that they learned things that they had never known before. So that was pretty flattering as well. When did you know that you had a book? How many interviews did you have to do before you started thinking, hey, this might work? 
Well, let's see. I had done about two dozen interviews for my blog before I had decided to start doing a book. And from there, I just put the pedal down and didn't look back. I had Mark Frost in my corner. And I think once I started getting commitments from Ray Wise and some of the writers and producers, I really felt like I had enough momentum to ride it out towards the end. So there was never any doubt. There was never any moment where it was like, oh, this isn't going to happen. It was all just all hands on deck. Let's do this. Well, so now when I, I talked to John Thorne uh, earlier this year, and he was mentioning that Mark Frost has got a book that's going to come out that's going to transition between the TV show and then Twin Peaks 2016. Do, do you have Do you have any insider knowledge on that? I have a tiny bit of insider knowledge. An associate of mine <laughs> has a relative at the publisher, one of the publishers for Mark's book, and that's up in the air. I think they're waiting to see what happens with Showtime. But I've wow. got to say, a Twin Peaks novel written by Mark Frost is is very tantalizing to me. <laughs> yeah, I, I hope it doesn't end up in a crate with the uh, the Ark of the Covenant from Raiders of the Lost Ark or anything. It it possibly could, and then <laughs> I think I mean so like one uh, what Sherilyn Finn, it seems like she's one of the really outspoken people who are you know trying to salvage the Showtime deal. Uh, it looks like she's <laughs> she didn't get blown up in the vault. <laughs> yeah, uh, Sherilyn never fails to speak her mind. And I think she is one of the best people you can have to to lead the rally cry to get Twin Peaks back. What's what's kind of fascinating to me is, I mean, because in my head these these people are the Twin Peaks characters on some level, and they don't ever age. And so it was kind of a shock to see, you know, twenty five years later. I think this could be such an interesting experiment. I really hope it happens. Yeah, well, I began to have a few suspicions. I was sort of talking to some of the cast members um, since October, and I remember in January, one of the notable cast members told me that they had not signed a contract, and that was a little worrisome to me. And so I guess once they showed Kyle McLaughlin as Agent Cooper, I began to feel a little bit better about it when uh, they brought him out of the Television Critics Association. Mm -hmm. I think that was in January. But I know as, as late as February, David Lynch was calling people and saying that production was set to begin in May. So I'm not sure what exactly happened between February and, as we call it, uh, Bloody Easter Sunday a few weeks back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> The day that Lynch failed. Wow. I mean, it, it, it's funny that he sent those tweets out on an Easter Sunday because, I mean, who who conducts any kind of business on Easter <laughs> Sunday? <funny>. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> those poor those poor Showtime executives. I mean, they were probably sitting down to Easter lunch and their phone blows <laughs> up and it's holy shit. David Lynch leaves the week. <laughs> Only Lynch would do something like that. 
<laughs> well, we've been talking a lot about Dune. I don't know. Um, I don't know how close we are on time, Douglas. But I want to talk about Kyle McLaughlin as much as possible. And I want to know what you guys yeah. think of him and his whole lineage. And it's interesting if you look at his IMDb. It goes, "The boy next door." If that boy spent lots of time alone in the basement, is how Rick Cohen described Kyle McLaughlin in a 1994 article of Rolling Stone magazine. That distinctly askew wholesomeness made McLaughlin a natural to become famous as the alter ego of twisted director David Lynch. What was it that David Lynch liked about about Kyle? I don't know for sure. I know Kyle was right out of drama school from the University of Washington when he got cast in Dune. I think that was really his his first break. I don't. I'm not even sure he had any screen credits before then. But, you know, Lynch has kept coming back to him throughout uh, the 80s and the early 90s, but they haven't worked together since Twin Peaks Firewalk with me, and it would be great to see those guys work together again. I mean, I kind of feel like Kyle is, is, is Twin Peaks more than Laura Palmer, more than maybe David Lynch or Mark Frost. I mean, you can't do Twin Peaks without, without Agent Cooper, and I think... It's it's Kyle's greatest role, not to you know, not to downplay any of his other great work on the screen, but Agent Dale Cooper is just, I think, the the greatest television character ever created, and you that's all due to Kyle and his performance. Yeah. Uh, what do you are are you? How do you feel about him as an actor today? I mean, the stuff that he does, is there a change? Because I, I still think he's a, a fantastic actor. And what, what amazes me is how many things he's been involved with, everything from Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. to Sex and the City. I mean, to The Doors, it's incredible. Yeah, I his role as the mayor on Portlandia, I think it's hilarious. I do, I too. It's <laughs> a, a, a testament to his depth and... And he's a really nice guy. I mean, I've had the pleasure of meeting him a couple of times, and he is just such a gentleman, and he really holds Twin Peaks and Agent Dale Cooper close to his heart. And so I know he's got to be excited to go back and do it. I just hope it happens. (laughs) How do you feel about Dune? And not just as Kyle Gosh. in general. I mean, as far as like Lynch's project and involvement and everything. But and then at the same time, imagine the world where David Lynch directs uh, Empire Strikes Back. <laughs> what? Well, I I think uh, Return of the Jedi is what he was approached. It, was that it? Okay. Oh, yeah. oh, good grief! That would have been Muppets on acid. That would have been crazy. Well, and you have to think, if he had directed Return of the Jedi, would it have altered his past and Twin Peaks would not have happened? I kind of think yes. I don't. I can't imagine David Lynch able to do that because it seems like – well, I'm surprised that – I don't know. It seems like Dune was this crucible that burned off any desire for him to do anything in a commercial – I mean he, he only wants to do it his way. And it gets more and more so as his career progresses. Yeah. Well, his career took an interesting turn after Blue Velvet. He had a production deal with Dino De Laurentiis, and his production company went bankrupt. And some of the scripts, I guess most of the scripts Lynch was interested in directing, got all tied up in 
in legal court or bankruptcy or what have you. And I think that was a really good opportunity in time for him to say, hey, let's try television. And uh, he had a one of his agents, uh, Tony Krantz, was the guy that sort of convinced him to go down that avenue. So it's, it's really interesting to play the what-if game. I don't know what would have happened. Hmm. But back to Dune, I mean, do you see Dune as a failure? Oh, well, I have only seen Dune probably three or four times. I, I mean, I don't hate it, but I know that the experience was so sour for Lynch. I don't even think he includes it on his discography or filmography. I mean, and so, you know, it's just, it's one of those things I just look at and it was the birth of his collaboration with Kyle and it sort of helped get us to where we are today. So I guess I appreciate it in that sense. And it has Sting, and I love Sting. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think uh, Big Ed isn't. He he plays the he plays a big role in that movie too. Uh, is his name Everett McGill? Yes, that's correct. And was he one that you weren't able to get for the book? Yeah. Um, I never really got in touch with Everett. I think he's a very uh, intensely private guy. And so, um, you know, maybe down the road somewhere. I don't know. What's interesting about him is he hasn't acted since The Straight Story, which was uh, released in 1999. So this Twin Peaks revival really might be the only chance we have to see, you know, certain select actors on the screen again. I mean, I don't think uh, you're going to see Richard Beamer in any big time productions. He's kind of doing his thing in Iowa. And the same goes for a few other uh, actors. Uh, Twin Peaks is really our our best chance to see some of these people on screen again. So for that reason alone, I really want it to happen. Yeah, me too. I mean, so reading your book, I got the sense that, that the acting game is really super fickle. And it seems like David Lynch has such a soft spot for it. He's And Tarantino too, where they they try and get work to people that they've appreciated from the past in kind of, you know, kind of fun ways. Sure. Michael Parks is another guy. Uh, he's one of the Tarantino's uh, reliable actors. You can see in Kill Bill as Sheriff McGraw and Esteban and in a couple of other films. And Michael Parks was also Jean Renault in Twin Peaks. Yeah. Yeah, that was... That was a great chapter in your book, too. So I know that there's a Twin Peaks Fan Festival coming up. It's probably going to be a super big deal. It's sold out. Are you going? I have my tickets bought and my airfare booked. I cannot wait. Yeah. I, I hope it's not a super downer. <laughs> I, I hope not, and I don't think it will be. I went to a Twin Peaks Festival called The Great Southern a couple of weeks ago in Richmond, Virginia, and... Everybody was really excited. I, I think only like the super hardcore people that are tweeting and on forums every day are the ones that are freaking out about this. There's a lot of people that just casually love Twin Peaks, and I think if it comes back with or without David Lynch directing, you know, millions are still going to watch it, and it's not going to be a big deal. Um, so I don't think it'll be that sour. I think I think, I think uh, I'm hoping for a celebration and not a funeral, though. Because yeah. uh, I know everybody was so excited, especially after the big October announcement. And to kind of have it taken away, it's sort of like promising your dinner party the finest wine and then bringing out, you know, a six-pack of Keystone Light or something. <laughs> <laughs> well, who knows? Maybe maybe they'll get Spielberg to direct. 
hey, he almost uh, he wanted to do it in uh, 1990, so why not? What a fascinating story that was. <laughs> Can you imagine? And, uh, you know, the interesting thing about that is Spielberg wanted to direct the second season premiere. And the second season premiere, in my mind, was, you know, one of the big death nails for Twin Peaks. Uh, they barely cracked 19 million viewers, and they never saw that number again, uh, even with the advertised revelation of Laura Palmer's killer. So, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I loved that second season premiere that Lynch directed, but I think a lot of people, uh, especially casual viewers, tuned in and tuned out pretty quick. Was it just too weird, or what was it? Well... You know, for instance, that 10-minute montage with the giant and Agent Cooper, I think it's beautiful and incredible, but I think you're testing the casual audience there. Oh, yeah. And I think a lot of people were counting on Laura Palmer's killer being revealed, and that didn't happen, and so I think a lot of people just tuned out for good from there. And if you look at the Nielsen numbers, I think uh, it's pretty apparent. All the viewers were just like, quit playing games, Lynch. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, we're, we're just about done. What, what's next for you? Well, I am working on another book about a contemporary show of Twin Peaks, and I am just laying the footwork for that. And so <laughs> no timeline on it. And I also have a ton of leftover material from Reflection. I would like to assemble into another volume of sorts, uh, maybe something a little different, but I'm still figuring that out, and that's really all I've got going on. Well, that was 42 Minutes. Thank you for sharing it with us. Okay, thank you. You've been listening to Brad Dukes on SyncBook Radio, a production of thesyncbook.com. Information about the work of Mr. Dukes can be found on his website, bradstudio.com. B-R-A-D-D-S-T-U-D-I-O-S dot com. For more information about the Think Book, our guests, uh, check out past shows or to subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, please be sure and visit our website at 42minutes.com. If you like the podcast and would like more, consider becoming a member. Some of the membership benefits include full access to the complete audio archive, discounts on books, behind-the-scenes scripts, bonus audio and video, as well as monthly online hangouts with the host. All this and more can be found at thesyncbook.com slash membership. Thanks so much. And you're looking at it wrong, the sky thing. If you ask me, the light's winning.
And we can't live, but we're too afraid to die. 